Detroit and I could see in the distance, like it was just chaos. We didn't have any gate to go to. They had to wheel out one of those stairs on the tarmac to get us off because there were no gates because everybody was landing there and we were one of the last planes in. And then, I mean, the, it was just chaos at the airport. All the rental cars were gone. I actually, in the plane, during, during the descent, I could hear people going, oh, the towers have fallen. And I remember thinking, Welcome back to another episode of Cold Red. I'm Ray Carr, and with me always is Fitz. Today, we have back with us retired FBI agent and technical advisor for the film and television, Bobby Chacon. Bobby, welcome to the show again, and thank you for joining us today. Good to see you, Ray. Good to see you, Fitz. Thanks. Hey, last time we ended when you were talking about the downing of TWA 800. Can you go back into it and tell us a little bit about that? Sure. 1995, I got on the dive team. So I was a fairly new diver. A year later, 1996, July 17th, it's a Wednesday night, two days before the opening ceremonies of the Atlanta Olympics. This 747 flying from JFK to Paris explodes off the coast of Long Island. I mean, everybody thinks it's terrorism, right? I, a plane just doesn't, of that size, just doesn't explode and fall into the ocean, but it did. And so I was dispatched. Half the dive team was already in Atlanta. Um, they stayed down there. The half that was still in New York got put out to Long Island, um, and we started doing the investigation. The first night, I had to do interviews because we weren't really ready to get in the water. Um, and so I, I remember being interviewing people till like four or five in the morning um, about what happened because you know this major. Because like I said, everybody's thinking terrorism. The Olympics are about to happen. Is this a diversion? Are they going to strike the Olympics? Whatever and and stuff. And so you know, for the next four months, um, I had to leave my regular squad. So. The dive team at that point was called a collateral duty, which means you had a day job on a regular squad doing whatever. I was doing right. Jamaican posses, Jamaican drug investigations. And I, on the weekends or training, I would train a couple of times a month and then deploy as needed. Um, well, this was a big deployment. And Jim Kallstrom was the assistant director of the New York office and put all the resources into, you know, uh, helping the NTSB and helping Suffolk County Police Department um, do the diving. The Navy came up. NYPD, FDNY, everybody sent their dive teams out there. It was a massive, massive search effort that ultimately resulted in us recovering over 91% of that plane. Parts of that plane washed up as far away as Maine to Delaware uh, on the shores. Um, and that's how the spread happened. But we got uh, over 91%. The plane was actually put back together in two separate hangars at Calverton in Long Island. One was the exterior shell. Uh, of the fuselage, and the other was the interior with the seats and and the and the and laboratories and stuff like that. So one was the exterior, one was the interior, and the engineers used those to um, kind of rebuild the scenario of what happened. And and those were ultimately moved back down to either an FAA or the NTSB museum outside of Washington, somewhere in Virginia. Um, but but it was a massive operation. We were diving every day. It was 125 feet. Um, we did 14 minute bottom time dive. So we didn't go into decompression obligations and, and things. And so a lot of bodies in the water. There were a lot of kids. There was actually, um, an entire class from Pennsylvania, um, from a small town in Pennsylvania who were doing a French immersion thing where, so it was three French classes of high school students and their teachers and a lot of their parents as chaperones all were going over to France to do like a two or three week French, immer French, French language immersion program and the, they were all lost in this that small town in Pennsylvania I don't know how they ever recovered from that um, and it was it was devastating but there were a lot of you know kids yeah. in the world my first recovery was a little 12 year old girl um, lots of bodies in the water um, for a for my first real dive job it was it was quite impactful 
um, to be there. We went back a year later. The families had a, a, a kind of a reunion of sorts and a, and a ceremony on the one year anniversary and got to talk to a lot of the family members. And um, it, it, it stays again. It's one of those things that stays to you to this day. I mean, I talked to a guy who um, he had flown over a day before and his wife and two daughters were on the way and they were on that flight and he lost them both and told me a story of how um, when he, when he was recovering from all this, he was still, you know, trying to get back to work. And, and he was from Texas and Dallas, I think, or Houston. And, uh, he said, you know, um, the only piece I have is there's a part of me when I travel home and, you know, those of us who commutes a long time, you know, you kind of turn off, you zone out and, and you're in that commute mode and you don't even remember driving. And he said, there was times when I would be driving home and I'd forget they were gone. I thought my wife and, and two daughters were still at home. And, and he says, and it wasn't until like, you know, it, you know, it wasn't until I walked through the door um, that I realized the house was empty. And then, you know, he said that that time frame of of me having that little piece that they were still there kind of shortened and shortened and shortened and shortened until it was like, you know, just this much time that my mind would shut that off. And I they were still there. And and he said it, it was like a minute. And, and he said this was on the one year anniversary. I'm talking to him on the beach. And he says, I live. I live 23 hours and 59 minutes a day to spend that one minute where my mind, in my mind, they're still there. And wow. you know, when you talk to somebody like that, that's been impacted and they're thanking you for helping in the recovery, it, it's, it's impactful. It stays with you. And it was, it was great work. I was, you know, it was some of the most um, uh, tough work to do in the bureau. Cause ultimately after that, we, we did a lot of child recoveries from predators and, um, um, but it was some of the most rewarding. It sounds strange to say, but it was some of the most rewarding work uh, that I did in the bureau to to recover people um, uh, and children and 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 help families kind of with that process. It was it was it was difficult, but it was it was very rewarding. And Bobby, as you know, you mentioned the Atlanta Olympics. Then just a week or so later, there was a bombing there. Ultimately, that was Eric Rudolph, who had done a number of bombings subsequent to that. So we had a whole special operations team down there doing what they had to do on the land. Bobby's in the water. I, a, a couple other things. I heard um, there were a lot of new agents that were sent out to, uh, brand new agents in New York, sent out to work that case and interview, of, of course, witnesses, whatever, airline people. But they um, they also had to kind of help put the evidence in place, including body parts. And a lot of them had some problems with that. These are people maybe right out of the academy only a month or two. And you don't really get training for, you know, putting yeah. body pieces together on ice or however they were being preserved back then. And look, you're in the water too, seeing some of the stuff. This couldn't have been easy for you either. So, I mean, that's no, again, another thing in law enforcement, people don't realize. I think some of the people you're talking about, so we, we dove from July to November and then the weather on Long Island gets a little too bad and we were losing too many days, people getting injured on boats and stuff. So what they did was they contracted these trawlers who were basically dragging the bottom of the ocean with these nets, old fishing nets. But they had to have one FBI agent on each boat. They would go out for seven days at a time. You're sleeping on this, really this working boat. It's not a very big boat. So the diesel fumes and they were getting sick. Some people were puking for three days. You know, these were young agents, the one you're talking about, because nobody wanted that duty. Who's going to get it? The new guys, right? So they were literally sleeping on these trawlers that are not pleasure ships um, and, and throwing up for days at a time. And occasionally the, they'd raise the, the nets and they'd have to shift through all the garbage that they've now come off the bottom. Maybe some of it was, you know, debris, some of it was body parts, maybe some of it wasn't, but they would go out for seven days at a time and come back. And, and mm -hmm. a lot of those, those people 
those young agents had had a lot had a lot some issues. It was tough. It was tough work. Wow, wow. And um, wrapping up this case, there were a lot of rumors back then about people seeing missiles flying up and all. Mm -hmm. Remind our audience, um, it was an internal engine issue somewhere somehow, right? Yeah. So back then since it was not a full flight, it was a half full flight. They only used the, 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 the wing tanks and the center fuel tank, which is basically under the entire fuselage was empty. Well, you know, fumes under pressure are the worst thing you can do. You'd rather have it completely full. Airlines didn't want it full because if it's only half a flight, it's going to be more expensive to fly with a full heavy load of fuel. So they were saving money back then. And so, so what, what happened was the, the wiring harnesses ran through the center fuel tank. And when they inspected similar aged 747s that came off the line the same time that did, they saw a pattern of fraying in the wires. Well, something arced, something jumped. All it needed was a spark. Um, one of the changes was no more flying with the empty fuel tank. You have to keep it full. Now, some genius a couple of years later then came up with an inert gas system that was able to flood the center fuel tank with inert gas non-inflammable, non-explosive gas, and so they, which was light, and so they did not have to. But for a couple of years after that accident, they had to fly with a full tank, which is much less volatile, um, even if they only had half the people, which was much more expensive and inefficient for the airlines to operate. But then somebody they did come up with a solution a couple of years later that this inert gas system, that they would infuse the tank with inert gas, pressurize it, and so they could still stay light and save money again. So- all this, you you know the airline gas and chemical situation. You got so advanced in your diving that you became an expert in that area too, because you go to certain depths for a certain amount of time. You know, you don't just have regular oxygen on your back. So I mean, That's you right. were getting advanced training in that, doing deep dives for the bureau, and uh, you worked on some other pretty big cases too over the years, including some famous homicide cases. I know. Yeah, I mean, let us know a bit I, about I, that. In by 1999-2000, um, we were so busy that New York said, you can't be leaving all the time. We were all we were 12 agents assigned to New York, and we were constantly traveling outside of New York. So our supervisors didn't want us leaving so much. And so the, we had to take the FBI laboratory. Remember, ERT kind of came of age in the 90s. And so and so the ERT mm -hmm. unit, the Evidence Response Team unit, for people that don't know, that's our crime scene unit. We don't call it CSI. We call it ERT. Well, that unit at the lab said, we're going to take your team that you have going in New York, and we want you to replicate it in other offices and three other offices. And so I was tasked, I was in the right place at the right time. I spent two years working with the US military with scientific diving, academic diving, archeological diving, um, other federal agencies like the National Park Service and the EPA who have great dive teams, um, local dive teams. And so I basically did a best practices thing. Commercial divers, I met with the commercial diving industry that dives in the Gulf of Mexico and oil rigs and stuff. And so we took the best practices of all these things um, and we, uh, we, we built our program and we, we ran it and the Navy was great with us. We, we sent people, myself included to, to Navy, not only Navy dive school, but Navy dive supervisor school. Um, we did mixed gases, surface supplied air. Um, and so, and so we, we really built the, out our process that stands to this day, um, and how, how they do it. And, and we're, we're proud of that. So yeah, we did the, the space shuttle, uh, recovery in East Texas in 2003, the Lacey Peterson case in, here in California was kind of a well-known one. Um, I, I sent a diver down to Natalie Holloway in Aruba um, to see if diving was going to be feasible. And that, that case was just the news again. Um, it wasn't in the surf zone. Um, but we, we really had a, a really busy operational, operational tempo in that we, in 2011, when I was running, I came out to L.A. and was running the L.A. dive team, um, we prosecuted two uh, cocaine submarines 
150 miles off the coast of Honduras. Um, the, the Coast Guard C-130s do, do the run of surveillance in that area, um, picked up these mm. two semi-submersibles a couple of months apart, and uh, they sunk them. They, they sank them on purpose. And so we went down, uh, lived on a Coast Guard ship for a month, and we found them. We cut them open with tools, uh, and then we spent eight days recovering. One had 650 and one had $750 million worth of cocaine on them. And uh, that was good diving. Sharks in the water, all kinds of fish in the water. Um, yeah, so so we did a no like and so there was a serial killer in twenty eleven or twenty twelve in Alaska. Um in two thousand six, we went to thirty miles south of Baghdad. It was 130 degrees in August of two thousand and six. Uh and we were we were working for the army. The Secretary of Defense called the FBI director and wanted our dive team to go to Iraq and do this case because five US soldiers uh had raped and killed a fourteen year old Iraqi girl. Um and, and shot and killed her mother, father, and five-year-old sister, so, and then set them all on fire. And so uh, Army CID out of, uh, out of uh, Kentucky uh, with uh, Fort Campbell, with the FBI Louisville Division, were prosecuting this case because two of the soldiers, two of the five had rotated, they all rotated back. Two of the five had been dishonorably discharged for other incidents, because this case didn't break yet. And so they were under investigation as civilians because they were discharged. And so Louisville, FBI had those two, the Army CID had the other three, so they were working it jointly, CID, Army CID, and the FBI. And so, and so the FBI director said, well, we'll send our dive team in because, number one, the military divers in 2006 were too, they were otherwise deployed. Um, they were busy. And, uh, and they wanted somebody from outside of DOD kind of to do the diving. And so we went. So I like to say, like, you know, I brought my divers from, from northern Alaska under four feet of ice on a serial killer case to 30 miles south of Baghdad when it was 130 degrees when we were diving um, and uh, and every other type of environment you can think of in between. Is that the Israel Keys case up in Alaska? It was the Israel Keys case. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah, familiar um, with that. And uh, didn't, didn't you or your team fa- actually find Lacey Peterson's body? No, Lacey had um, Lacey had uh, had washed ashore. Lacey and Connor had washed ashore. Connor was about a mile away from Lacey at the time. Um, a big okay. storm had come through the night before, but Lacey's body was um, kind of decimated. She was in the water for about four months. Um, her head, hands, and feet were missing. Um, the working theory uh, by the Modesto PD was that Scott had uh, tied weights to each wrist, each ankle, and her neck, and that's how he sunk her. And stuff. so over the course of, she was only in about eight feet of water. So over the course of four months of tidal action, so her body was like this and pressure was on her joints and then low tide, it came out, high tide, it went up. So over the course of that, it weakened those joints. The salt water is kind of like sandpaper, if you will, over and over washing and washing and washing. And ultimately those joints at the elbow, at the wrists and ankles and neck yeah. broke her free. A storm surge had come through. So we were actually looking for her hands and feet and her head. That's what we were sent in to look for, and the weights that were holding her. Because in his storage unit, they found concrete powder. They found the, the remnants of those clay pots, those clay flower pots. When he used them as forms, he put the concrete in that. And then when it saw, when it, in, in a U-bolt, and when it hardened, he knocked away the clay pot, and he had a nice nice anchor. And he did that. And this, of course, five or six this is the husband, the husband the Scott husband Peterson. The convicted of the murder, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so Bizarre. we were up there for about a month looking for her head, hands, and feet. We never never found her. Okay. Last question here. What's your deepest dive ever, and what were you looking for? It depends on – so in Northern California, we went and we found um, four bodies that were killed uh, in L.A. by the Russian mob. 
and they were weighted down with the 45 pound gym plates and, and big tie wraps and thrown off a bridge. Those were down about 400 feet and we recovered wow. all of them, but we recovered them with the use of an ROV. So we had some advanced stuff. So we, we had a, a basically a big robot with a big arm and a camera and we sent the robot down, we hooked them and we brought them up to about a hundred feet and the divers waited a hundred feet. Uh, oh, working depth was probably two, two fifty. Um, any deeper than that, we would use the robots um, if, okay. we, if we could. I, I like to keep my divers out of harm's way as much as possible. Um, so, and, and quite frankly, the majority of our dives were lakes, rivers, and ponds. Um, you know, and and stuff. The, the the Israel Keys case, he that lake in northern Alaska or north of Anchorage, Alaska, was um, was about forty five, fifty feet deep. But we had to cut through four feet of ice to get to the water. Um, but um, diving below ice is very nice, actually. It's crystal clear. It's great water to dive in. It's a little cold, but it's great water to dive in as far as visibility. Um, so, yeah, so so we our, our working depth, our operational depth was probably, I think, 2,000 feet, 2,500 feet um, with, the, with the robots. Um, but our our diving depth was probably, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have pushed my divers much past 250 feet. And that's mixed gas and rebreather stuff. And, yeah, it right. was very rare, though, that we had to go that deep. We went that deep. We were using the robots usually. Bobby, backing up a little bit, um, we all, of course, experienced 9-11 uh, attacks uh, uh, in one way or the other. Um, but you have your own individual story about that different than many others. And in fact, you just received award, an award in the last month or two from, from New York City, I believe, correct? Well, from the FBI director, Director Ray. Yeah, okay, he, but it, it was in New York City, I know it was, it was held. because most of us were New York agents at the time. and they Walk wanted... us through your 9-11 experience and then bring us up to sure. how you got that well-deserved award. So I'm, um, I'm assigned to the New York office. I'm running the New York dive team. A month before 9-11 in August, I flew out to Michigan to do a site survey to look at a site that the Michigan State Police requested our assistance of. It was a homicide case looking for a gun in, in Lake Michigan. And, and so I went out and I did the site survey. I met them, met the cops and, and got the, you know, then did a report, knew what I needed. We usually did that about a month before you come back, you fashion the gear any way you need it, you know, and you figure out what your loadout needs to be um, and stuff. And so uh, me uh, on the morning of 9-11, um, I was flying to Michigan, to Traverse City, Michigan, um, through Chicago. And uh, I had three other divers on the early flight with me. And then three other, four, four other divers were flying that afternoon. Um, and so we arrived at Newark Airport. We had a flight, uh, United 91, uh, Newark to Chicago, and then we were going to change planes and get up to Traverse City. Um, we were one behind in the flight path um, as from Newark, uh, from United 93. So we were United 91. We were 757 going Newark to Chicago. United 93 was a 757 going from Newark to San Francisco. And so they were in the same flight path because from, from, from Newark, to go to San Francisco, you're passing like Chicago. That's the flight path. So they were one behind us. So we're lifting off and and um, I'm on a window seat. And I'm admiring the view of low Manhattan as we all do um, back then. It was like everybody knows it was a beautiful, clear, crisp day. And I'm looking at the towers and I see the first plane hit the North Tower. Now, I don't know what's a plane. I see an explosion is what I see um, and, 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 and flickering, you know, the flickering of the glass and stuff. And I look behind me about three rows back was another one of my agents. Now we're four armed FBI agents on the plane. And, and we both shrug our shoulders like, that's weird. Something happened there. That's not, you know, I think maybe a small plane had flown into it because years earlier, a small plane had flown in mistakenly into the uh, Empire State Building. Uh, and so we didn't know. So we bank left. We were taking off out of Newark and we bank left and we're on our way to Chicago. And the co-pilot, female co-pilot comes out. Now, 
the the pilots and the flight crew, the flight attendants, always know where armed passengers are sitting, and FBI agents always fly armed. And so they have our seat numbers, and they kind of we meet them before the flight most of the time. And so so they knew where we were sitting. So she came out, and she kind of motioned for each of us to meet her in the back. So the four of us kind of go in with her in the back. And, you know, typical, they pick Tuesday because it was the lowest, you know, passenger flight. The back of the plane is all empty. We're in the back alley with, with, the, with the co-pilot. She's telling us, now this is minutes in, right? So she's telling us 20 planes have been hijacked. Planes are being flown into buildings all along the eastern seaboard. I mean, this is what we're, we think. We're, we're in a bubble, you know, and we can't reach anybody out and, and stuff. And so um, this is what she tells us. And that's all they knew at the time. It's not like she was trying to be misleading. Um, and, and so... I went into the cockpit with her um, and the pilot, I could hear here, and I had one of my guys stay outside the cockpit and the two other guys way in the back and stayed in the back. And uh, I could hear him trying to reach United 93 um, because they were supposed to be right in front of us. So they were trying a point to point type of thing because they were not at that point in the country. You're, uh, I think uh, the air traffic controller is at Cleveland. Cleveland Center is controlling that whole area. And so he, they're not answering. And so I... I, I, he's busy and I can hear him 90, 91, 91, 93, 91, 93. And I say, well, where are they? And she goes, they're supposed to be one. They're supposed to be right ahead of us. And, but we can't find them. And I said, why not? Mm -hmm. And she said, well, they shut their transponder off. And I said, well, why would they do that? And the pilot must've been like listening through his other ear. Cause he kind of snapped. He, he said, they wouldn't like, he just kind of let me know. And I'm like, I just, like took a step back as well. And then I look at her and he went back to trying to raise 93. And I'm, I look at her I was like, like, you just told me they shut their transponder off. He just told me they would. And I says, what does that mean? Like, I just, I lowered my voice to her and, and I could see her ear, uh, eyes start to well up. And she said, you know, that means they're not flying that aircraft. And at that point I knew that morning they were all 757 pilots. They were in the, in the pilot's lounge at United at Newark that morning. They were going over their weather reports. They were flying a similar pattern. So they know these people. They're all friends. They're, they've probably flown with them at times and, and stuff. And so I could see her welling up because, as we all remember in the 70s, when we had a rash of political hijackings, the, 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 the pilot's instructions were always get the plane on the ground, take them where they want to go. They want to go to Angola, take them there. They want to go to Cuba, take them to Cuba. Wherever they want to go, get them on, get the plane on the ground, and we'll negotiate the release. Um, but get the plane on the ground safely. That was your instructions. Do not give up control of your aircraft. And she knew if they had given up control of that aircraft, they did not do it willingly. And so that was kind of an acknowledgement on her part that her friends were probably dead. That was the only way they would give up the control of their aircraft. And and, and so I could see that in her face. And you know, I said, where are we going? She goes, I don't know, but we're not going near Chicago because Chicago at that point had been shut down too. All the major cities, right? Sears Tower was a was a potential target. And so we ultimately landed in Detroit. <clears throat> we were the last plane into Detroit and I could see in the distance, like it was just chaos. We didn't have a gate to go to. They had to wheel out one of those stairs on the tarmac to get us off because there were no gates because everybody was landing there and we were one of the last planes in. And then, I mean, the, 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 uh, it was just chaos at the airport. All the rental cars were gone. I actually, in the plane, during during the descent, I could hear people going, oh, the towers have fallen. And I remember thinking, these rubes, they don't know what they're talking These are probably out-of-towners. They're not from New York. Those towers can't fall. I remember as a New Yorker thinking, that's that's just silly. Um, they're getting bad information. Um, those towers, is, I, they can't fall. They're just too big. I, I was in, in one of them three weeks earlier. Uh, the Bureau doctor was in there when you do your physical. And, and, and those can't fall. And it wasn't until I was, we were running through the uh, terminal that I looked up and there was a bar with one of those big screen TVs and I saw the towers falling. They were replaying it. 
And, and I couldn't believe it. I just, it was, I was in shock. Luckily I called the Detroit field office and I said, I need a car. They got like, we got no cars, but you're in luck because attorney general Ashcroft was supposed to be in Detroit that day. He was supposed to leave Washington. His advance team, which was only like eight, eight guys was in Detroit waiting for him with two 15 passenger vans. They only need one to get back to DC. You want the other one? I go, yeah. So through the Detroit SWAT team who was liaisoning with the AG's detail, um, they got us a 15 passenger van and we took it back to New York and they drove back to DC and uh, we got to Manhattan. Well, we got to Newark airport to get our cars. It was an armed camp. There were Jersey troopers with, you know, M16s everywhere. Um, They escorted us to the long-term parking. Um, I turned in the van and then um, they, uh, they, they, we got our cars back and we probably got to lower Manhattan by, I don't know, 10 o'clock that night or maybe midnight. I can't remember the exact time. And then we, we just, we just, you know, we were all divers, but we just, we went to work. You, you did anything you were asked. And so we started working at Ground Zero, started working out at the landfill eventually, at the morgue and everywhere else. But we were on United 91. Um, like, and, and, you know, like I've thought a lot of, you know, like we, we go around security. The terrorists on that flight went right through the same security we did that morning. We were probably sitting 50 feet from the terrorists in the adjacent gate because they took off from an adjacent gate that we did because 757s were all the same same type of planes and same area and stuff. And so, um, you know, I, you know, I probably saw them or I probably sat, was sitting, you know, you know, 50 feet from, from those terrorists that got on that plane, you know, but for the grace of God, they've got on the wrong plane. They would have got on our plane. Believe me, the three of us, four of us have talked, I've talked to the other three guys and, and we all have had numerous thoughts about having been, you know, they should have been on our flight. We should have been on that flight. They should have been on our flight. You know, things would have turned out a lot different. Um, anyway, so, so then, you know, we worked and then, um, over the course of the years, those of us that have worked there, um, we go through medical monitoring and, um, uh, so we have, we have, we've lost a lot of agents now since 9-11 from, from illnesses that would attribute their work there. Um, and I have some medical conditions related to my work there. And so, so, um, the FBI just, uh, had an award ceremony for everybody that's getting medical treatment through the 9-11 first responder program. They invited everybody back to New York. They, they actually, Bureau paid for my trip, which was for me and my wife. And, and the Bureau paid for my trip 10 years after I retired and stuff. And so I got, got to meet the director, got, you know, on stage. There's a bunch of us, not just me, a bunch of us um, got to see a bunch of old colleagues, but I hadn't been back to Lower Manhattan in 20 years. I couldn't, I didn't, I wasn't emotionally uh, capable of going back to Lower Manhattan. This was my first time in 20 years going back. And um, a friend of mine, she was the case agent, Mary Galligan was the case agent on 9-11. And she uh, arranged for me to have a back, my wife and I, to have kind of a VIP tour of the 9-11 Memorial Museum. I got through about 75% of it before I kind of ducked out. But um, it was it was an, an emotional three or four days, but it was good to be back in, in basically my hometown and uh, and see a lot of old colleagues. And right, you want to take them into Hollywood after this? Yeah. Some of them were, you know, some of them are battling some some serious illnesses. Including our good friend Jim Clemente, who was on uh, on uh, last season. And speaking of Jim Clemente, Ray, you have some questions for uh, for Bobby. You know, Bob. Um, you know, I knew Mary Callahan pretty well too. Um, uh, so I did I. Case, I worked a case with her uh, before she climbed the ladder. Right, <laughs> yeah. she climbed the blue velvet ladder. But anyways, uh, I want to move on a little bit here, Bobby. And and uh, you're out in L.A. and all of a sudden. Uh, Hollywood, you, you turn into Mr. Hollywood. 
So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what's that like? What's yeah. that like to be you involved? You know, it's funny because I was in L.A. when I retired in 2014, but my wife is is, a, is executive producer of the Olympics. So as soon as right. I retired in 2014, I moved to Brazil. And so I was living in Brazil. I was living the happy life. I was walking my two rescue dogs along the beaches of, of Copacabana and Ipanema. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I get an email from a friend and says, because hey, he knew I was coming back to L.A. eventually. But for a couple of years, I was in Brazil for almost three years. And um, but I get a, an email saying, hey, the, an opportunity has come up. There's a new show. It's called Criminal Minds Beyond Borders. It's basically a spinoff of Criminal Minds where the team, instead of going to a different place in the U.S. every year, goes overseas, kind of like a league program, but for the BAU. Um, and so I said, they need a, an advisor, you know, and I said, well, I don't know what to do. So it's easy. Just I'll, I'll walk you through it. This was our friend, Jim Clemente and Tim Clemente, his brother. And so, and so I fly back immediately, almost the next day. And, and so then I started kind of a month in LA, a month back in Brazil with my wife, a month and a month, a month. And, um, and I started being a tech advisor on, on this new series. And Gary Sinise was the, was the lead of Alana de la Garza was the female lead, Daniel, Daniel Annie great actors, still all good friends of mine now. Um, and uh, I worked two seasons on that show, showing them how to hold a gun, how to put handcuffs on somebody, how to avoid crossfire, you know, the typical stuff that's pretty easy for any of us that are, you know, spend any amount of time doing it. And uh, and then then I started at the behest of Tim Clemente and Jim Clemente working with the writers because they said, you know what, it's a dead end. Being a tech advisor is a dead end. It doesn't pay very well, long hours, um, but it's a very good foot in the door to become a writer. And then you really learn how to write if you start spending time with the writers. And that's what I did. I started cozying up the writers. Then I got into the writer's room. That show didn't last more than two seasons. Um, and then Jim Clemente, who was still on the mothership, we call the mothership, the regular big criminal minds. Um, <laughs> he invited me back over to work with him in the writer's room. So the first two years in the new show, I was literally on set every day, working with the actors and the director. And then the last two years, the second two years, of the four years I was on that show, I was in the writer's room working with the writers, developing stories, developing episode ideas, you know, and actually doing a writing. And then Jim and I co-wrote an episode uh, during the last season of Criminal Minds. Um, uh, I say last season, the last season it was on CBS. It has been reborn now on Paramount Plus, um, but it's different writers and different people, um, same characters, but different different people writing it. So, so I was on it the last season of its 15 year run on CBS. And so then Jim and I co-wrote an episode of it, and that got me into the Writers Guild. From there, I got on a show um, for Nicole Kidman um, and HBO Max called Crime Farm um, about a real-life couple in Colorado from the Netherlands who moved to Colorado, and they do crime reenactments. One's a, one's a DNA expert, and the other's an MD who's also a forensic expert or something. Um, so Nicole liked their story, and so we wrote uh, eight, eight episodes of that. I wrote episode seven, which is like the courtroom scene. With my law degree, um, our showrunner wanted me to do the courtroom episode. So, so I'm a writer now in Hollywood, and and um, you know, and and along with Jim and Fitz, you know, I still do a lot of commentating on the news and different shows on Oxygen and ID. Whenever I, I have an agent, and whenever something like that pops up, I can get a role here or there. But my main thrust now is writing. I want to. I've been writing some pilots on different shows and um, trying to generate interest. It's a tough time in the business right now. Um, it's a tough time to be a guy in Hollywood that looks like any of the three of us <laughs> to say that, but we are kind of a dinosaur of sorts, uh, in, in Hollywood. Um, and so, and so, um, but I'm still plugging along, still writing my own stuff. I just finished five months as a juror on a murder trial, a murder one with special circumstances, which is the highest, uh, murder charge in California. Um, and, uh, 
you know, a, a role that I never thought I would play. Um, and none of my colleagues in law enforcement or with their law degrees have ever sat on a jury, certainly on a murder case. And it was five, a five and a half month trial. We came a, a week ago today. Uh, we came in with our verdict of guilty on all 10 counts. Um, and it was a fascinating uh, thing. I, it was, I didn't know it was on my bucket list, but I'm so glad I did it because it was a fascinating, like when you, we, we, we've all sat at the prosecution table, we've all right. been, you know, next to the prosecutors, um, but sitting in the jury box, completely different perspective. Um, and it was interesting. And it's, it's actually made me, I think, a better writer um, because I'm certainly already drafting a pilot uh, for a miniseries based on this case. It's a very interesting case. Um, we've, we've all sat in that prosecutor's table and, or even just observed or, or appeared as witnesses, but, um, the everyday dealing with your jury members, they, they knew you're a lawyer and yeah. retired FBI. Mm -hmm. And at first I think you were an alternate, right? But then you wound yes. up on the very first day of trial. So the, the judge knew it was going to be a very long trial. So he had 12 jurors and 10 alternates, which is a lot of alternates, but he knew it was going to be a five-month trial, so he knew he would lose people over the course of that. Well, the very first day before opening statements, we lost a juror. So we all come in, and I'm sitting in the galley, gallery with you know my other alternates, and the 12, the 12, I thought were 12, but I look up, and there's only 11 jurors in the box. I'm like, well, that's interesting. And the judge explains, well, we've lost a juror first day. We haven't even started yet. Um, and then he picks a name out of a hat of the 10 alternates, and it's my name. So I'm, <laughs> I'm put in. Over the course of the next couple of months, I think we lost two more or three more. So we were down to five alternates. So we lost a couple of jurors and the alternates got put in. But I was the first one and I was there from day one for opening statements as a juror in the box. Um, did you find yourself being overly critical of like law enforcement or did you ask questions that maybe you never thought, at least to yourself, that you wouldn't be asking otherwise? How did that part play out? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was my have, having been to law school or having been through trials before, but I was, I did find myself, especially in the beginning, going, you better prove this case to me beyond a reasonable doubt. You better like, because it was, it was a case, admittedly, the government admitted in its opening statement that the guy on trial, we only had one defendant because the others were separated and retried and stuff, but the guy on trial was not at the murder scene, did not know the two guys who did the murders never communicated with them via my voicemail or texts, didn't know who they were. But it was a conspiracy case. There were six people involved in this conspiracy. The guy charged with, in my case, was the only guy that knew the victim. He was the conduit to the victim. And so they were defrauding him, stealing his money and stuff, and then ultimately killing him. And, um, and, and so, so, you know, I, I sat back and said, well, the government already admits that this guy had, he, had, he was not there. He was nowhere near the murder scene. He didn't know the two guys that committed the murder. I said, if you're going to prove to me beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, you better have some really strong evidence in that case, you know, because they're already admitting that he, he didn't take part and he wasn't there. And uh, and I got and over the course of five and a half months, they did that. They, they It was painstaking. A lot of it was text messages. A lot of it was pings on the cell phone about where he was at certain times and then marrying it up with the text. I mean, you know, he, he, he was smart. He made sure he was out of the area when the murder was going to take place. So you see all these cell phones now coming together. They did a great job with the graphics. You know, three or four of them come together, and now there's no text because they're all talking to each other. They're together. And then all of a sudden, they start going in opposite directions, and my guy starts driving from here in Palm Springs where the murder happened back up to his home in Sacramento. And he wants to be up in Sacramento when they do it. And so he's like, don't go in the house yet. He texts, don't go in the house yet. You know, like the texts sink him. 
And then he's like, let me know when I can go back to the house. So he's back in the house the next day after they remove the body and he's cleaning out the guy's artwork. Um, and, and so over the course of, of the months, they did kind of have a lot on him, even though it wasn't the traditional, you know, smoking gun. Um, it was really interesting that like we would, as jurors, we would talk on the breaks, we would talk at lunch, you know, walking to our cars at the end of the day. But none of us really talked about the case because we weren't allowed to. The judge always admonished us, you know, don't talk about the case. And so I didn't really know until last Monday when we went into that room to start deliberations where everybody stood, where their heads were. And much to my surprise, 11 and a half were pretty convinced that this guy was guilty and uh, and, and actually convinced. And then one guy um, wanted to know a little bit more, and he was perfectly justified in doing that. And we opened the books. We had all the exhibits with us and all the testimony. And we did, we looked at the, the records. We looked at some of the evidence since we opened everything up. And, 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 and actually by him doing that, we all kind of felt better about our decision. You know, we all actually like, oh yeah, we're, you know, we were, we were sure, but now we're really sure. And, and he was sure he was, he was more than halfway there anyway. He just wanted to, he's like, this is a guy's life. It's the guy's going to get, he's going to get probably life with no parole. His sentencing is the 17th of November, but, you know, he's probably going to get life with no parole. So he says, I just want to make sure I just want to go over this stuff. And we deliberated for about six hours. We went over the stuff and looked at the stuff. And um, and, and, and I think we did a really good job. I think we did our due diligence in looking at the evidence and, and considering everything. Different people had different questions. Um, I was the fourth person of the jury because they they thought I, I could I could kind of get through things quicker. The last thing they wanted to do was have a protracted deliberations because we were being inefficient in our process and stuff. And so they felt that I could, you know, expedite the process. Not, not, I wasn't there to kind of convince anybody, but they thought just the paperwork and the process and the verdict sheets and things like that, because there were lesser included offenses. There was manslaughter on the table. There was murder two that we could have decided on. Um, but ultimately we convicted of murder in the first degree with special circumstances. Um, financial gain was the special circumstances. I got to take a step back here, Bobby, and I got to ask you this. I'm sitting at the prosecution table or I'm sitting at the defense table. And I have this guy who's in the jury pool and he's an FBI agent. Well, if I'm on the prosecutor's table, I want you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I'm on the defense table, I don't want anything to do with you. Right. Now, I find out he's not only a retired FBI agent, he's also an attorney. So now if I'm at the prosecutor's table, I don't know if I really want you because you'll know everything <laughs> I'm doing. And then I'm thinking if I'm at the defense table, I don't really want you because I'm going to know everything that they're doing as well. So they're sitting there and they're, and they're going and I'm thinking, I guess our listeners would like to know why in the hell would they choose you? It's almost like it's a it's a perfect storm when it comes in there with you there. And I knew without you even telling us that you were going to be the foreman on that jury. I knew. Well, you know, voir dire is where they get the chance, chance to right. question, right? So they're questioning me, and the prosecution doesn't have any questions because, like you said, he doesn't mind me being up there. But um, the defense asked me a lot of questions about the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments. I was a, a PLA in the FBI. Right. I was an agent that also taught other agents some legal stuff. And um, so he asked me about the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments. He, you know, and the rub was too, I think he was, he was more interested that I had my law degree because of that. And um, the defendant happened to be a hip pocket informant for a guy in the San Francisco police department who testified for the defense. Mm-hmm. So 
he, he asked me some questions about that. Have you operated informants? Yes. You know, do they sometimes play both? You know, so so I think he was counting on me aligning myself with the detective from San Francisco that came in and testified for the defense. This case was for the Palm Springs Police Department. Um, they they prosecuted, they investigated and stuff. So um, I think he he thought that I would be persuaded by that that detective that detective in San Francisco who came and testified for this guy saying, yeah, he's always given me good information. I think he's honest and all this stuff, but I wasn't persuaded by that. Um, uh, and I think that that's, I think that's kind of what they were thinking. Um, I, Jeez, I, Bob. They didn't, they didn't read the room very well with you. I'll tell you, they, they missed the damn boat. I mean, <laughs> because you know, Bobby, I mean, think about it. If there's anybody that can cipher through all the bullshit, it would be someone like you. <laughs> you yeah. You'd be able to read right through it. And he already knew too, by the way, an FBI agent testified in the case. I'm sitting really? there. Yeah, from a guy from um, the RCFL, the Regional Computer Forensic Lab in, okay. in Orange County, because they did all a lot of the cell phone analysis for the case, because Palm Springs is a small police department. So they have an age, uh, a, a detective assigned to the RCFL. And so he shipped all the phones over there. And so this FBI agent got the ticket to kind of do a lot of the analysis. So an FBI agent is is testifying and I'm in the jury box. Uh, and the defense knew he was on the witness list. He knew it. But I think, yeah, I think he I think he was looking at me more like, you know what the burden of proof is. You're very familiar with the burden of proof. You know, the government has to meet it. Those are all questions he asked me during voir dire. And I said, yes, absolutely. You know, and and he talked about informants and stuff. And then I I I I wasn't very impressed with the San Francisco uh, guy uh, detective who was running this informant. I think yeah, he, should have, he should have he should have known he was one of these guys, I think, that. He knew his informant was up to something and he was just looking the other way because the informant was making a lot of cases for him in San Francisco. He was a fraud guy. And so he was making a lot of fraud cases in San Francisco for him. Um, but then he does. He's involved in this murder in Palm Springs and he doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want to look at his. So, yeah. Bobby, was this detective still on the job or was he retired? He was retired from the in. San Francisco guy. He was yeah. retired from San Francisco. He was now a DA's investigator in Marin County or Contra Costa County, one of the counties outside of San Francisco. He's doing his retirement as a DA's investigator. But he testified. Like, he wasn't, you know, he would testify for the defense. I got. I guess he, he was served a subpoena, so he had to do what he had to do. Yeah, but yeah. I'm sure he agreed to anyway. Yeah. I'd have to say, Bobby, that the only reason why this defense attorney let you actually get into the jury pool or actually let you get into the uh as an alternate was the fact that he really believed that his client was innocent <laughs> otherwise uh there's if he if i feel my clients not if i feel my client and he should know if his client's innocent or guilty and if he believes that his client is innocent then it doesn't matter who's on the jury he's, yeah. he's going to prove it but right. if he thinks he's guilty then he made a big big he made a bad move. Putting and he on. had preemptory challenges, which is a challenge. You can dismiss a jury right. cause and you don't have to give the reason. And he had preemptory challenges left. He could have gotten rid of me. Um, but this was a retrial. One of the fascinating things about it is the retrial is that the way mm. he got the trial, he represented himself at the first trial where he was with other co-defendants. They were all retried separately. But what he did, because he with the phones, he was the kind of a computer whiz guy. They gave him a laptop to use in court to represent himself the first time in the first trial years ago. And he downloaded software to his la his court laptop, which stayed, by the way, in the judge's chambers at night. He couldn't take it to jail with him. He downloaded software to that laptop that allowed him to do audio recordings 
from that laptop, even when the laptop was closed and off. So oh. he, he, he was the judge. All the defendants were gay in this case, and and so was the victim. And so he used the judge make a uh, uh, So one of his co-defendants in the original trial had AIDS. And in the George's chambers one night, he hears the, the judge say to his, his clerk, hey, I want you taking all the papers from that guy because I don't know where his tongue has been and I don't want to touch the papers. He's got AIDS. Oh, jeez. It's illegally gained, but on appeal, that doesn't matter because right. there was no suppression on appeal. Everything gets to be thrown in because there's no jury to be influenced and stuff. So on appeal, the appellate court hears this judge making these anti-gay claims mm. and they win the bias and they all get new trials. Um, uh, yeah, so, so like he actually, this defendant got them all new trials. Now, the guy who with AIDS never got the retrial, even though he won it, because he was transitioning from male to female. And before they, they switched him to the women's prison, he was beaten to death by his cellmate. So he never got his retrial. Um, so there's all these tentacles to this case. That's why I'm writing it as a, as a based on the true story miniseries right now. Um, and, and Dateline was in the courtroom. I'm, I'm talking to Dateline tomorrow about a show. And it was a very interesting trial with a lot of different little like that. Like whoever heard of a guy putting a listening device in a laptop that then overhears the judge in his chambers and he wins a retrial based on it. I mean, how, well, how the moral of that story then is from that point forward, if you're going to do that, make sure you have an evidence locker where that goes into and not into your chambers. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm sure there was a lot. Well, that judge had to retire. Um, they made him retire. It wasn't the judge on our trial, obviously, but they made him retire. Right. But it was a lot of interesting things happened in this case. Well, I can't wait to watch that screenplay or watch that series, whatever. Bobby, in closing here, anything you want to website uh, or, or web information about yourself or, uh, well, or sure. any type of projects you're on? You both mentioned, Mary. So I wrote something called After the Fall which is an audible series um, right. about the, the FBI's investigation into 9-11. If your listeners want to hear about um, what the FBI did after 9-11 to investigate the case, even before, because we start way back in Yemen and the coal and the, and the East African embassy bombing, but you'll hear it directly from the agents that are involved. So every episode is the agents themselves who did the work talking. A lot of them are retired now, so they can talk more freely from when they were working. So if you want to hear from the agents who conducted the 9-11 investigation. Uh, Ali Soufan is on it. Um, you know, many people that you guys know are on it. In their own words, hear what they did. Um, there's investigative stories. There's victim witness stories. Um, there's M Richard Marks, who ran the Fresh Kills landfill. Yeah. Richard, you know Richard from Philadelphia. I know him very well, yeah. So Richard has a whole episode just for him of telling us, you know, how we built that mini city at, at Fresh Kills. And Richard's a great yeah. guy. I knew him because I worked in ERTU um, with the dive team and stuff. So After the Fall is available on Audible. It's an Audible original series. So if you have Audible, if not, I think they offer a 30-day free trial. You can listen to some of them. And if you think it's good enough, then kind of join. But um, so After the Fall is kind of the thing I would, I'm most proud of so far in the last couple of years that we've done. It's, it's agents in their own words who were out there doing the work. Um, some from the JTTF, um, Richard, Mark, some from Evidence Recovery um, and stuff. And so I think it's, it's, it's a compelling story, I think. There's a lot of stories in there. Some of the episodes you can listen to on their own, um, but, but you'll want to listen to them all. It's a great chronicle of uh, that event and what happened, of course, years before, years after. I know Bobby did a great job. I've heard, I've listened to it and uh, uh, excellent work there. Ray, anything in final for Bobby? Then I'm going to sign us off here. You know, Bobby, I'll tell you what, um, what a remarkable career that you had with the FBI and that you continue to have. 
I mean, it's like a storybook tale. I mean, you know, talk about uh, just, I mean, it's just amazing some of the things you've done. Uh, I'm so proud to, to say that I know you. Thank I you mean, very I'm much. Very I'm honored. I'm honored here. But, you know, I, I don't I don't fool myself because, you know, we all know people. I mean, our careers, the one sure. thing, you know, I always my dad's not with us anymore. But like I always thank my dad still like he was right. The career in the FBI was like any unlike any other. And we've all been involved in stuff we never thought we could never envision being involved in when we started our careers. Um, but it, it's just it was a fantastic career. And I'm glad that now I'm in this process of telling the stories of people um, who did this this fantastic work. And wrapping up with Bobby, we had land, air, and sea in terms of the various anecdotes and very interesting ones that he told. And so in closing here, Bob, I want to thank you for joining us and shedding light on this incredible multi-decade career of yours. I know you're still busy doing stuff. None of us is uh, you know, retired here full time. And great having you as a guest. Everyone, uh, subscribe to the Cold Red Podcast and follow us on all Cold Red Podcast social media platforms and Cold Red podcast.com so again bobby for uh for ray and i thank you very much for being on board here and i'm sure we'll be in touch before long on different venues and different projects thanks thanks for having me i'll come back anytime thanks all right bobby. take care everyone see you next time folks that was great bobby oh, thank great. you so thank much you.